coming soon on Out TV. Serial killers seek out people to kill that are available, vulnerable, and often won't be noticed that they're gone. The guy was a monster. The guy did horrible, horrible, horrible things. Killer in the Village, detailing the crimes of Bruce MacArthur. Here's this guy who's essentially building this mini gay porn empire out of his basement in the rolling hills of eastern Pennsylvania. This story has sex, it has murder, you know, but somebody real, a real person who had real dreams and real passions, died. The Cobra Killers, investigating the murder of adult film mogul Brian Koshis. I can do what I want with Mocha and hurt her, and there will be no repercussions of that. Black trans women, uh, the highest statistics in terms of trans women killed. What I see is blood everywhere. Uh, very gruesome. Surviving the Block, the Mocha Dawkins story. Three new queer true crime documentaries. This is an OutTV production. From grinder killers to dangerous online daddies, LGBTQ spaces on the internet are getting a bad rep. But are they as dangerous as people want you to believe? I'm Justice Harvey Brownstone, and I'm conducting an examination in chief. Charm is harm with a C. The word predator should be said and often isn't. It's a recipe for violence. Some people might suggest that the behavior is a manifestation of the trauma. Regardless of what sort of gender prison they're put into, I mean, why is this happening? All the homophobia and transphobia and the hate in the world would disappear. That's not reality, right? I'm joined today by Yelena Vermillion, award-winning transgender porn star and activist, Ian Royer, chief creative officer at Anansi Tales Marketing and a social media expert, and Andrew Fedosov, the director of OutTV's documentary Killer in the Village. Hi, everybody, and thanks for joining us. Andrew, how does the internet and social media play a role in your film? Significantly, Bruce MacArthur used apps as uh, as one of his ways of meeting his eventual victims. He killed people he knew for a long time. He killed people he had met in bars. He also met one randomly on the street pandering for money. But I have to say one of the most striking components of this whole series of murders was how significant the uh, the apps were. Well, I have to say, my part, full disclosure, mm. I met my partner online. We never would have met any other way. That was on Match.com. So I absolutely am a fan of this resource. Mm-hmm. I believe, Yalana, you said the same, your partner. You <laughs> oh, God, he's going to kill me. Yeah, I met him online. It seems to me that there's a lot of uh, queer specific dating and hookup apps. Is uh, Am I right about that? Uh, yeah, I would say that there are ones that are for specific communities because the queer community is so vast in what you're looking for or what you're offering that there's apps that cater to that. So there's like Grindr, Scruff, oh, uh, Tinder, Bumble. Bumble actually works differently for gay men than it does for straight people which is also very interesting. Sign me up. Yeah, there's this <laughs> Her, which is uh, for queer women. So yeah, there, there are a lot of apps that cater to the different communities within the LGBTQ plus space. Is it not only that there's so many different types of um, distractions that people are looking for, but also the fact that there's a higher appetite, do you think, in the queer community for online sex? Well, I don't think it's just online sex. When you look at the history of, of 
of queer people, you'll notice that there is there's a lot more freedom and sexual expression. So because we're marginalized the community, there's the rules of that heterosexual people have to play with don't really apply to us. Uh, and a classic example of that is how it plays out even in an app like Bumble. So I have straight friends and they would talk about their experiences and saying, yeah. So on Bumble, if you're in a heteronormative situation, you both like each other by swiping, but the female has to in, has to initiate discussion or you, the, the man can't message the woman unless she invites it. But on Bumble for gay men, either person can talk to each other. And that's kind of a great allegory for how sex kind of works in the community and it's just being applied to a current situation today. So I, I think there's always been freedom in, in the LGBTQ plus space to express yourself sexually that isn't really in a heteronormative situation. And the apps just cater to that even more. Do you think that because we are a marginalized community that we need online apps more than straight people? I think that, uh, so first of all, if you're, if you're not a part of the community, you can go to any bar, restaurant, football game, and it's easy for you to meet somebody and talk to somebody and you're not repressing your sexuality because it's accepted. So queer spaces are limited. And so interactions are limited for queer people and the apps really bridge that gap for you. So you don't have to go into a bar on Church Street to meet someone, which is really the villages where you would go to meet traditionally before social media was a thing. Uh, and the apps just help bridge that gap because there is a lot of loneliness. There is a lot of, of psychological factors that don't allow queer people the same comforts of meeting someone that they can date in real time. Well, I'm a lot older than all of you. And when I was young, the only way to meet people was to go somewhere either to a bar or to a bathhouse or sometimes a park. Now that we have the internet, it doesn't seem like there's that same, uh, it's not very prevalent to go and meet people in person anymore. It seems like it's all online. Well, uh, the society on a whole has become more online. You do your shopping online, you can buy your clothes online, you can book tickets online. Everything is pushed online because that's the tool that we have now. So of course, sex is going to be there because sex, sex is the oldest thing in any society in the world. So that, of course, is going to be prevalent on the social media spaces and it makes it comfortable. There's no awkwardness. And I think that that also, so the founder of Grindr created Grindr because he was an awkward person and having the app tell him who's in his area that he can talk to. And because of that geographical positioning, you know, people are close to you. You know, if you're going to go get a hookup, it's near. You know, if you're going to plan a coffee date, if you're not looking for a hookup, it's near. So it, it cuts a lot of mystery. Um, as to where you can find a partner for whatever you're looking I, for. I have to say in the analog days, because I did have a significant spell in the analog days before the digital days. One of my beefs on brick and mortar bars versus the digital apps was that in the brick and mortar world, it favored a certain kind of body type and look. There was a pecking order that immediately showed up. And that was obliterated by technology. And there's a democratization of the loins happening with the digital age. Like everyone's getting some action. Nobody needs to dress up and pump up and pretty up to get laid. But don't you think the profile pics very much contradict that? No, I, I think, no, I really don't. I mean, sure, you, put, you you make them pretty, you make your profile pretty. Or people post pictures of themselves 20 years ago. I mean, I'm trans, <laughs> I use Grindr, and I often see a lot of like that supremacy of like no fats, no femmes. I would respectfully disagree in some way. Inside, and I 
say that with no small measure of self-criticism, essentially. But there is there's just more access than there was in the brick and mortar days. But it also speaks to the point as to why there's such diversity, because now because apps are so easy to create and make, there's an app for you for what you're looking for. So like a couple of weeks ago, I was just like, okay, I want to do an event because I do some events in Toronto. And I was like, I want to do an event catering to queer women because I don't see them in the village. Where do I find them? And I spoke to a friend of mine who's a lesbian. She's like, oh, you haven't heard about her? And I'm like, no, because I'm not looking for chicks. So tell me. I'm like, yeah, there's an app specific for queer women. And it's also very, uh, it, it works very well for trans people of the trans experience because there's less they don't really tolerate a lot of the shaming and a lot of the discrimination on the app. And it's small, but it's still there and it's growing rapidly. So to both of your points, the apps themselves bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. So because of the MacArthur case, there is a perception out there that LGBTQ hookup apps are dangerous. Any more dangerous than than heteronormative apps? I, I just think that danger always accompanied anywhere gay men gathered in history, in the course of history. In tea houses and in gay bars and bathhouses. In fact, in bathhouses, I think it was the most dangerous because the police were in on it. I, but wherever we go, there is a danger component that accompanies it. it but what I'm, what I'm struck by, of, by this documentary uh, and by the Bruce MacArthur story, is how the danger actually exists in the appetite for sex and not necessarily in the app. So there's quite a distinction between the app itself uh, being dangerous and the choices that people make once they've made a contact to put themselves in harm's way by maybe going to a place where they're uh, vulnerable. Right. right. But then there's this long courtship charm episode that happens and then people open their houses to these people. And they're, you know, the, the, the village and my social network anyway, rife with stories of people who have been thieved or assaulted or the scene goes incorrect. There are minor crimes that, that accompany these scenes. There are, there's also an awful lot of safe, hard scenes, like a lot. It's almost like the queer world's not getting enough, enough credit for the fact that a lot of scenes actually deliver very safely. I, I would say to, to give a hard answer to your question, the app isn't the problem. The app is a tool. So for example, if you dig deep enough, you'll find that Uber has a high instance of sexual assault. There was uh, in the village last summer, an Uber driver specifically targeting feminine men and women. And, and we know about it. So it's not the app. I think that again, as a vulnerable community, it's easy to exploit insecurities. It's easy to exploit marginalization to do harm. When I moved here, I knew because my friends would tell me there's a serial killer in the village targeting immigrants. It had nothing to do with the app. The app was just how we found them. But it, it, it is 100% the vulnerability of the community that lends itself to this. The apps just create the gateway. And somebody who's intent on doing harm will find you on an app or they'll find you at the bar or they'll find you in front of your house. They'll find you. Well, are you suggesting that the police should not have warned everyone during the MacArthur investigation or afterwards they warned people against using queer dating apps. They, they warned people as a response to the amounts of pressure and the the public shaming of their, their lack of interest. So if we knew, and we're not police officers, they didn't do their job. And to save face is when they started 
doing that that security check. But we we had already known by then. We knew. We knew and we would have a buddy systems in I was, place. Like I, I, I'm gonna respectfully disagree. I, we had a sense, but the police needed to know, and the police don't move without knowing with hard evidence. We had a sense, a sixth sense, or some sort of perception. Clearly, if you step back far enough, you're gonna connect the dots between apps and serial murderers. But really, when you dig in, and when this is what we do in our documentaries, when you dig in, police cannot make a move without actual tangible information. And then they release this opinion about apps. And it's only because they genuinely felt that they were the source of the danger, which what they didn't do was they didn't account for the aggressive appetite for apps. I wonder if it would have been more effective to say, you know, racialized immigrant men um, of the queer community, please keep yourself safe if, if they knew that there was a pattern. But I would think everybody needs to know, given that you've explained that it isn't the app that's the problem, it's the choices people make once they've made contact. Maybe we haven't done a very good job as a community of looking out for each other and educating ourselves about what are appropriate ways of, about making face-to-face contact with someone that we've connected with online who's a total stranger. Ultimately, you know, the, a, a survivor isn't responsible for being the victim of violence. And, you know, there are ways that we can protect ourselves and be wise and listen to our intuition when uh, interacting with these apps. But I, I wonder if maybe like we should have prevent or avoid this idea that a victim is responsible for that. Sorry, I'm actually curious, Yelena, in the sex work world, what is the safety component in your profession? Oh, okay. So what mechanism? So there's what you can do called a safe call. You could um, use an app such as, um, what's it called? Glimpse, G-L-Y-M-P-S-E, um, where you can send a trusted friend who knows what you're doing with who, you know, maybe they have some small details about the client that you're seeing. And if they don't hear from you past a certain time, then they, sh- you know, maybe they have like a glimpse of your ge- your uh, geographical coordinates and they could send the law enforcement if something goes awry. And typically beforehand, I, uh, dem- you know, like I require a photo, a selfie, just um, even just the willingness to um, be compliant or voluntarily uh, comply with, you know, simple requests is one small indicator that we can use to be intuitive and screen our clients. But of course, we can only do that if we can use those mechanisms effectively. Have any of you had scary experiences with people that yeah. you met through a dating app? Totally. Uh, I haven't. I've, I've been on the other side where I've been a fetish on the app. So I can see very easily how people can use the apps to satisfy their fetishes and their fantasies and that that thrill of, of, of an anonymous hookup. So like we've had this type of things before in the analog days. Like there's a lot of education about stranger danger. We just haven't updated stranger danger to a context where it's on an app. The reason I asked the question is because I'm a criminal court judge and I have seen my share of online uh, encounters that went real south. And uh, no, the victim is never responsible for a crime. However, I've had jaw-dropping testimony where a person has put themselves in a very vulnerable situation where alarm bells ought to have gone off. For example, I had one case where the victim of a pretty brutal sexual assault agreed to be handcuffed by someone that he had just met. Now, I get the point about the fantasy, but you have to protect yourself too and make sure that the fantasy is being played out with someone that you can trust. I agree. Especially when you know nothing about them. 
I, I, so I'll put my hand up on this one. I'm asked all the time, six, four beardy, dark guy. Would you please just throttle me? Yeah. Because you can be, become a fetish. Yeah. I'm trans. So I get that too. Mm-hmm, right? You get, do you feel objectified? Totally. Like you're, you're not, you're not being looked at as We're a an idea. Yeah. You're just your, your concept. You're a, and are you okay with an that? archetype? Because that's a fantasy for you too, isn't it? Sure. I don't particularly judge, uh, but I do worry. I think the problem is, is that uh, a lot of queer people carry trauma from coming out, from having to hide who they are for so many years. So when straight people are in their formative years in puberty and they're allowed to explore their sexuality, we're not. And it doesn't matter what kind of situation you come from, how loving your family and friends are. There is a period where you you limit yourself because you think that what you who you are and what you're doing is wrong. And well, there's, there's trauma a self-loathing that yes. you have to get over if you were raised uh, to believe that this is wrong. I think we all, especially my generation, that was how we were raised, right? And so that leads into a lot of the opportunity to prey on that so if you're not a good person like we're 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 people who are responsible the people who do these crimes are not responsible they're looking for a target and it, it doesn't matter if you're straight or gay or whatever people who do these things take an opportunity based on self-esteem they know that the person is gonna isn't gonna tell they know that it's vulnerable and we're more prone to that because of our experiences as queer people and that's the issue it's not the app ian do you think that the straight world polices gay and lesbian and trans sex sites? A hundred percent. The internet gives you the ability to say whatever the hell you want without consequence, uh, which is changing. But I think there's a lot of misconceptions and a lack of knowledge about queer sexuality and gender. And a lot of straight people don't really understand the difference between sexuality and gender. And so it's policed a lot. Something that happens too on the app world is a lot of these keywords that police apps are built by straight people. And so they unintentionally are targeting and and policing us ourselves. So if you have sex work in your profile, as trying to be honest, the bots that they program will pick it up and flag it and ban you because it thinks that you're selling sex work because there's no education around that you can be a sex worker not soliciting sex on your app. You know, I used OkCupid since I was 18 and around 22 or 3, when I started disclosing on my OkCupid profile that I do do sex work as my main income, as my main career, to disclose to a prospective partner honestly what I do so that we could make a partnership and I could have a relationship um, based on truth and honesty. I was kicked off and banned on OkCupid because any mention is a criminal liability to those websites now. So it is stigmatizing and enacting discrimination against sex workers. Now, Yelena, for you, the internet, I would assume, is a commercial tool as well, not just social. Sure. So how can you talk to us a bit about how you use social media to promote your business? So I will say, yes, it is definitely used commercially by sex workers, but it's also used as a safety tool. I can have a dialogue with my client, my prospective client, and, you know, whether through asking for a photo and seeing what their response is, if they comply or if they're resistant, you know, like small psychological cues mixed with intuition and dialogue. A lot of it is subjective. However, it's used as a tool to keep ourselves safe. Is it effective? Uh, I mean, compared to like when I was young, sex workers were out on the street. Now they're engaging online. Is it safer online? 
It is absolutely safer online. Um, It is safer for sex workers to work indoors. You know, you mentioned street-based sex workers often. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions about people who are doing street-based sex work. Often it's more economically accessible for people to be on the street offering to sell or trade sexual services uh, for money or other things because, you know, people don't understand the kind of overhead that goes into advertising online and the cost associated the costs associated with that for my for example I operate a website I uh, pay to host video I pay to um, you know do a search engine optimization I pay advertisements on multiple websites across multiple forums because transgender advertisements for escort services are different um, and more niche and it is since 2014 from the Harper government, illegal to advertise online. Since that law was passed, a lot of these websites like Tumblr and Patreon, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Tinder, OkCupid, Twitter, PayPal, Backpage, and Craigslist have all started censoring sex work. Meaning if I posted to sell my sexual services, Backpage could have been criminally liable as as website owners, as webmasters. So when that law changed, many sex workers were forced out of mainstream um, applications. Does anyone here think that there is a stigma in uh, that still exists if you happen to meet your partner online? I ask you this because, you know, I'm a judge. Judge me, daddy. And when people ask my partner and I how we met, and I say online, the eyebrows raise and I can see through their eyes that there's this judgment that I've just been diminished. I can feel it. I happen to believe that if you use the internet intelligently, if you are smart about how you make the contact, if you read flags right, you can, it's very useful and very productive. But I still feel that when I tell people who are of a certain age, who consider themselves, you know, who are, who are like middle-aged enough, I can feel a certain burn coming from their eyes. And I wondered if you feel it. So we t- you have to deconstruct it a bit. And I think the reason why, so first of all, to my knowledge, and I can be wrong, but I don't think that I am, uh, straight people don't have hookup apps because it's taboo. So like there's no, there's no app like Grindr for straight people. Are you sure? I think Tinder is probably the closest analogous, but it's not the exact same as what I see what you're saying. I have female friends who are like, the grossest thing you can do is send me an unsolicited dick pic. But like on on Grindr, that's how you say hello. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. So dating apps in a queer context automatically is conflated with sex. So the, the you might be using a, a dating app like any other person and it's a dating app. You're not there sending dick pics and, and exposed butthole pics, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. See, I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have wanted to meet somebody that did that because right. I wanted to meet somebody. But, but when you say that you met your partner on a dating app, it automatically triggers because the gays have the sex apps. So it's automatically you must have met him on Grindr. And that and it, it gives that that connotation of something lurid has happened. And then they fell in love. I, my, as, but back to the whole we met on an app or, or on a website question it seems like everyone is in the establishment and in heterosexual world like you go where the people are and used to be bars or whatever used to very rarely are people meeting through other analog ways we're meeting digitally now and that's fine i'd love to ask each of you if you had one piece of advice to give a listener who might just be coming out a young adult looking to meet people online what advice would you give about how to 
be safe. Honestly, look for red flags. And as the BoJack quote says, red flags are something don't look the same when you look through rose colored glasses. So pay attention to red flags early on. It doesn't mean you have to run away, but you need to keep them in mind. Uh, I would say just as with online dating, as with life, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't. So once you're online and you're opening yourself up to putting yourself out to someone, there's a level of courtship and wooing. And you have to know what's good for you. And you have to set those rules and those boundaries for yourself. So it's it's about your own self-worth and know that, first of all, no one's allowed to speak to you in a certain way. And, you know, not everything that is gold glitters on the Internet. Just be a little uh, discerning of your own likes and your own thing and explore. There's nothing wrong with exploring yourself online and your sexuality. Just be smart. And that, that, that holds true for life. I'd say the direct lesson from the MacArthur murders is to be, be very aware of charm. Charm is harm with a C. And he was incredibly charming. It wasn't necessarily the intro point. You know, it's a, and that's a really tough one because I think there's a natural appetite for charm, that there's a natural intake for it. We are drawn to it. And he was masterful. He was a very... Uh, charismatic. Char- charismatic man. He also swooped in on people who were hungry. And they were marginalized men who were who were new immigrants here and they were lonely. I, I almost want to swoop in and turn the clock back and say, you know, one of the th- one of the ways danger comes into your life is when you are hungry and vulnerable and vulnerable. Work on that. Work on that part of yourself. Be less hungry. Give your hunger a boundary because that will keep you safer. You won't make dumb decisions, frankly. And, and I'd also say, too, because, again, let's be clear here. The Internet allows you to explore your desires and fantasies, but do some research. Like if you're going to get into the BDSM world, there's some very strict physical and emotional things that you need to learn before you jump into bed someone with a whip. This was very, very helpful, very insightful, a lot of information and very good advice. Thank you, Yelena, Ian and Andrew. If you're looking for more queer content, head over to OutTVGo.com. I'm Harvey Brownstone. Thanks for listening. producers are Bianca Sutton and Philip Webb. Our Yap Films executive producers are Elliot Halpern and Elizabeth Trojan. Produced by Jordan Steinhauer and engineered by Aaron Lockman. This podcast was made in association with Canada Media Fund. Be sure to check out our films, Killer in the Village, Cobra Killer, and Surviving the Block on OutTV. Thanks for listening. <laughs>